Hello everyone, I'm Ronnie McBrayer. On this podcast, you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. Most is a 2003 Academy Award-nominated short film written by William Zabka and Garbold Winoski. Most, in the Czech language, is translated as The Bridge into English. It is about a single Czech father, as it is based in the former Czechoslovakia, who takes his eight-year-old son with him to work. That work is as operator of a massive railroad drawbridge that must be raised and lowered depending upon rail traffic above or shipping traffic below. The film follows the events of the day and how they unfold tragically for the man and his son. Spoiler alert. The film is based on the story of John Griffiths, a story printed in the Michigan Baptist Bulletin in 1967. Though I must tell you, no evidence of Mr. Griffiths' exists. existence has ever been proven. Still, his story, and now adapted on the screen, will be with us for some time to come, us being the church. People like me, preachers, have used this story for years, and they will continue to use it for years as it has as much power and emotional hook and real life drama as any story can have. Whether it be true or apocryphal is beside the point. I'm going to tell you the story today, but with a disclaimer that I don't like it. Not because of its unknown origins, or because it might be historically inaccurate, or because it is so tragic. It's theologically inaccurate, as it seems to me. And as an explanation of Jesus' death is not a proper description of what happened at the cross. It's the 1930s. John Griffiths works as a bridge tender on the western bank of the Mississippi River. Trains move across the tracks. Barges skim across the river. It is John's job to raise and lower the bridge as necessary, engaging the massive gears of the bridge. John takes his son to work one day. Greg is his name. Greg is getting a tour of the bridge and the grounds. It's midday when John hears the whistle of an oncoming train. It's the Memphis Express, and it's early. John must run to the control room to lower the bridge. He tells his son to stay put. In the control room, just minutes before the train comes into view, John prepares to lower the drawbridge. In horror, however, he looks down to see that little Greg has fallen into the massive gears of the bridge. Now John Griffith is left with an impossible decision. Go immediately, leaving the bridge suspended and save his son, or lower the bridge and save all those passengers from certain death before plunging into the Mississippi River. He cannot do both. His son 
or strangers on a train. You know what he did. He engages the machinery. The bridge is lowered. Hundreds of passengers completely unaware of the tragedy that is now unfolding beneath the tracks are saved. Greg, John's only son, perishes. He is sacrificed for the salvation of others. Now, that's pretty intense. Even more so than the first time I heard the story. I heard that story when I was a kid. From someone standing behind a lectern just like this. And I imagined myself caught in those cogs. Become a parent. And you imagine yourself in the control room. And this is where it all goes to hell in a handbasket, if you ask me. If we, collective we, preachers, always in search of a sad story, if we use this as an illustration of what God did at the cross to Jesus, we've gone completely wrong. I'm not saying the story should not be told, but it should be told in negation. That is, it should be used to illustrate what did not happen at the cross. Not what did happen. It won't stop preachers, I know, why let a little bad theology get in the way of a powerful altar call, right? But it is bad theology at every level. God was not surprised by the events that unfolded at the cross. Jesus was not helpless. None of this was accidental. God was not caught in an impossible situation by his own incompetence, by the way, where the world had to die or Jesus had to die. So he closes his eyes, pulls the lever and screams out at the rest of us. Look what you made me do to my son. Was Jesus's death a sacrifice? Yes, it was, but not like that. This continued exploration of the cross of Jesus, we continue today, and we've covered a lot of territory over the last six or so weeks, and we have a little ways to go, though we could go on forever, it seems. There are multiple images, multiple clues, countless metaphors and theories employed to understand the death of Jesus. It is too mysterious, it is too important, it is too far-reaching to settle for one single explanation. And we've looked at a handful so far. Jesus as ransom, Jesus as victor, Jesus as moral and loving example, Jesus as penal substitute last week, and I threw more shade than praise on that one. I don't believe that there is a case to be made that Jesus was penalized, that God in His aggrieved anger wanted or wants us dead, that caught between grace or justice, God has a schizophrenic episode and had to slaughter His Son to resolve His own internal fragmentation. No, no, no. Still, Jesus did die by design, by intent, by the will of God. But it wasn't a divine homicide. It wasn't an accident on a drawbridge or on an executioner's hill. It wasn't appeasement of paganistic wrath. It wasn't a means to convince God to finally, God, accept us. And it is good to know these things, to work through some of these things, because none of this is academic. Your view of the cross is directly related to your view of God. They cannot be separated. And as I said last week, if we believe in the God that lurks behind so much of the church's preaching, 
A God who must murder His Son to make us acceptable. Or a God caught off guard and unaware and must do the best He can with a bad situation. If we believe in those gods, it will have a crippling, fearful, toxic result for ourselves and for the world. But back to the word that has come up all along the way in a center stage today. This word, sacrifice. And to go to the biblical text, atoning sacrifice. Romans 4.25, for God presented Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for sin. 1 John 2 and 2 that you've heard, He, Jesus, is the sacrifice that atones for our sin. And by invoking this sacrificial model, I'm going with a long-standing tradition that is that of St. Francis of Assisi, John Dunn, Scottish, George MacDonald, Jacob Milgram, Steve Chalk, Rene Girard, and others you may or may not care about, who accept fully that Jesus was offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the world, but He was not victimized. This is not the violence of God. It was not God's violence that killed Jesus. It was God in Christ entering into our violence. Meeting us on our terms. Taking it on, God sent His Son Himself in a body to reach us on the grounds on which we call home. The two texts today have a common denominator in an uncommon word. It's uncommon in the Greek that Paul and John use it. Our word for sacrifice is the Greek word hilasterion. It's used in one form or another only four times in the New Testament. The word means, and we have to look to ancient sources outside the Bible for this, since the word is so rare, it means two things. Number one, in effect, it means to remove guilt, or literally to disinfect, to cleanse. We can expand it to include words like forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation, the removal of barriers that prevent a relationship. So when you're cleaning your house... And you've got the best soap possible. And you're sterilizing the counter. Remember, hilasterion. I'm cleansing it. I'm making it whole. The problem arises when we move to the second use of the word. Hilasterion, as used in Greek and Roman religion, was any ritual used to placate, to appease, or to pacify an offended God. Paul uses the word in the first sense of the word. So just in case you've missed it along the way, Jesus as the atoning sacrifice for our sins was not murdered on top of an Aztec pyramid, as it were, to keep God from destroying the planet. God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for our sin, not Jesus was presented to God to cool His anger. Kenneth Weiss is right on the mark. He said that God's anger must be satisfied is not a use brought over into the New Testament for our God does not need to be appeased. This appeasement idea is imposed on the biblical writers and is completely pagan. It's not in the minds of the writers of the New Testament. For them, atoning sacrifice meant something else altogether. Let's talk about that for a minute. And to talk about it, I need you to go with me on a journey. I need everybody in the DeLorean.
That's what Doc Brown used, powered by a flux capacitor to send Marty McFly speeding through time in the Back to, to the Future trilogy of the movies of the 1980s. I apologize if that's a generational reference that is lost on you. That is your great misfortune as the films were wonderfully entertaining when I was a teenager. Nonetheless, into the time machine we all go. Into the 1981 DeLorean to go backwards, backwards in time to the 10th day of Tishri in the year 2762. That's how it is measured on the Hebrew calendar. On our Roman calendar, it is 1000 B.C. And we get out of the DeLorean and we're on the temple grounds of King Solomon's massive and beautiful temple. And it is the day of atonement. Yom Kippur or Yom Kippur. We get out. We look around. Nobody touch anything. You'll mess up the future, by the way. We get out. We look around. And it is strange what is happening. There is a massive, massive crowd there. Everyone able to travel for a hundred miles is at the temple this day. And they're all gathered on the grounds. And we see the high priest. He's dressed beautifully and wonderfully in linen and jewels and a turban and a sash. And he's about to go inside the temple on the only day of the year that it was allowed. And he has two goats. And they flip a coin. I'm not making this up. Leviticus 16, check me. They flip a coin. The, the goat that loses is immediately sacrificed. And his blood is sprinkled on the priest, sprinkled on the ground, and that blood is taken into the Holy of Holies where it is sprinkled upon the Ark of the Covenant by the name, the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant means Hilasterion. Where sins are cleansed. He comes out. Safely. Thank God. Because the Hebrews had this idea. And if you wanted to know. I'm going to summarize the entire book of Leviticus right here. Are you ready? If you want to know why the priest had to be dressed a certain way. Why they used blood. Why they did all of these things. It was the scientific mindset of the day. That God was so foreign. That God was so other. That God was a species so beyond our ability to comprehend and to exchange with. That it was like walking into a nuclear reactor. And you better have your hazmat suit on. It was like going underwater. We cannot exist down there unless you have the proper scuba, scuba gear to go in. It was like going into the Arctic and you're not going to do that naked. You're going to put on a parka because the environment is so intense and the environment to a normal person would destroy you. Why is the priest doing all these different things? The priests, the people of Israel, all ancient cultures believe that the life force was in the blood. The Bible says that. So if the life force is in this blood, I'm going to sprinkle myself with this blood and sprinkle the altar that I might be insulated from the terrible presence of God. Terrible not that God wants to kill me. Because what I want to do is to draw near to God. But the only way I can draw near to God is to be properly insulated. Do you follow me? He comes out. He's properly insulated. He didn't die from the presence of God. And there's the goat that won the coin toss. 
What do they do with him? Well, after they've cleansed the sins, the priest walks up to this goat and he crosses his hands, puts his hands on top of the goat's head, and transfers ritually and symbolically the sins of the people onto this goat. And then this goat is taken away from the city, taken out into the desert. And John Tyndall gives us one of the greatest translations ever brought into the English language. This is the goat that escapes. The scapegoat. He carries the sins of the nation away from the holy presence of God and God's newly cleansed people. That is the entire Levitical system in about four minutes. Of why it works the way that it does. People wanted to be close to God. It wasn't about appeasing the anger of God. It was about about drawing near to God. For near Him is life and warmth and all that was good. But if we get too close without the proper protections, we might be consumed by Him. When John the Baptist sees Jesus in the Judean desert, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He wasn't thinking about Jesus being strung up on a cross in that moment. He was thinking about the goat that escapes, that takes our sins and pulls them away that we might be able to remain in the presence of God. When Paul and John say He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, they are saying it as the good practicing Jewish boys that they are. Understanding all of this in its historical background, not what we have imposed upon it. Okay, everybody back in the DeLorean, here we come. Back to this present moment. And we arrive with this question. What then does it mean for us that Jesus is our sacrifice? And I'll try to say it again and say it like this. Jesus did not come to change the mind of God about humanity. It did not need changing. Jesus came to change the mind of humanity about God. Because we've misunderstood. God is the mysterious other, but God is not a monstrosity to be feared. God is the holy, wondrous more, but God is not unapproachable. Jesus entered the human construction of His time. He became the priest that carries out the ritual. He became the sacrifice thought necessary to enter God's presence. And He became the scapegoat who bears and carries away all sin. He was God coming to humanity and saying essentially this, Okay, I'll do it your way. I'll enter into your system. I will assume your conclusions about God. I'll meet you at the place of your understanding. I'll meet you on your terms. Then you will be able to see it my way. Then you will be able to arrive at new conclusions. Then you will be able to reach new understandings. And what are these new understandings? My friends, God isn't out to get you. God is out 
to get close to you. All these convoluted and bloody offerings, all these Herculean efforts to get to God, stop it. God has been near you all along. You know the story, maybe, of the old man and the old woman driving down the road. They've been together, married for decades, and they see another couple out on a drive, but this is a young couple, and they're sitting just as close as they can to each other. The young couple is. They're all scooched up, you know. And the old woman harumps and says, do you remember how we used to be like that? And the husband grunts back, who's driving, and he says, well, I haven't moved. God hasn't moved. Actually, that's not entirely right. God has moved. God has moved in our direction. All this straining and trying on our part, we just can't get there. We can't understand. So God comes to us. And the estrangement sometimes that we sense, the distance that we feel, the alienation that we might experience with God, these may be real, but it's not God who is imposing them. It's not God who has withdrawn into a holy, inaccessible hiding place. God still walks in the cool of the day through the gardens of His world, calling out to us, but it is we who are doing the hiding, and we who have withdrawn. In this sense... Nothing changed at the cross of Jesus. Nothing. But everything was laid bare. Everything became clear. Everything is brought to beautiful, brilliant light. No more blood is required to get to God. For God in Christ has shed His own blood to get to us using a human body, using our human constructed religion, playing by our rules, meeting us on our terms and on our grounds, making one last sacrifice that we might be able to see that no more sacrifice is required. For what does the word sacrifice mean? To make sacred. And as Jesus dies... He does exactly that. Everything is sacred. God wraps His arms around the entire world and pulls that world to Himself. And we learn that God has never left us. And we can live atoned at one with God, with ourselves, with our neighbors, at peace, reconciled with heaven and earth. You have been listening to the podcast home of yours truly, Ronnie McBrayer. You can follow me on Facebook or Twitter, whatever your socialization preference may be, at Ronnie McBrayer will get you there in either case. Visit my website at RonnieMcBrayer.org and there you can stay up to date. On my speaking schedule, books I have written, projects just over the widening horizon, and yes, you can find out more about me than anyone truly wishes to know. I'm Ronnie McBrayer. And I thank you for listening.